there are a lot of members of Congress who just want to stay there. It's a huge temptation. It's really interesting work. I think we're in for a very, very contentious and bombastic time. I think we're going to be looking at things that are not going to pass. I think we're going to be looking at members who are faced with this, who are looking at, do I stay or do I do something that I think is fundamentally right? She is a woman of many extraordinary talents, a former U.S. Congresswoman, an Emmy Award-winning journalist and author. Marjorie Margolis is also the founder of Women's Campaign International, which seeks to empower women to take up leadership positions around the world. A passionate advocate for women's rights and immigration, she was among the first prominent Americans to adopt a foreign child and is now the mother of 11 children, as well as the mother-in-law of Chelsea Clinton. Her most recent book is called And How Are the Children? Timeless Lessons from the Front Lines of Motherhood. Born and raised in Philadelphia, she remains to this day at 80 years young, a faculty member and lecturer at the Annenberg School of Communications at the University of Pennsylvania right here in Philadelphia. Marjorie Margolis, welcome to the big interview. Well, thank you. There are so many different things I'd like to talk about with you, so many different aspects of your life. But given that we are talking just a few weeks after the start of a new Congress. Did I'd... you notice that? <laughs> I did. Did anyone not notice that? Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. What would you like to know about this unusual body? Well, I think I would like to start with what drove you to run for Congress, and then what were those first couple of weeks like? What is it like to be a freshman take, take in Congress? Take me back. Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, I didn't think I would win. I'm a Democrat, and I was from a very Republican district. I was from a state that had never elected a woman in her own right. In other words, a couple followed their husbands after they died. We had never elected a woman in her own right in our history. So, And this was a suburb of, of yeah, Philadelphia. Yeah, exactly. It's a suburb right out of right, right in Montgomery County, right outside of Philadelphia. And I had always said to my kids, you can't win if you're not prepared to lose. You can't win if you don't get on the playing field. And a very unusual group of women came to me and said, would you run? I had a little bit of name recognition. And they said, would you run? And, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I had to give up a job that I loved. But I thought, you know, it's worth it. And implanted in your question is, you know, why would you ever want to do something like this? And I had been a reporter, and I had been a reporter in Washington, and I covered a lot of these people, and I thought, what would, I mean, as I was doing it, always I would say, what would it be like to be actually on the inside of trying to craft some of these important pieces of legislation, especially if you're a woman and you're interested in certain things? And when I got down there, I thought, oh my goodness, let's do a little bit of digging. The NIH, they only use male rats. Women were not included in and most of the studies, the aspirin study or anything like that. And it wasn't nasty, but they weren't looking at those kinds of things. And I thought that it was the year of the woman, it turned out to be, 92. We doubled the number of women in Congress. Uh, it wasn't a large number, but we doubled the number of women. There were 23 of us new ones. And we thought that there was something that we could say without being bombastic, that we could look at it and say, wait a minute, you are more than half of the, you know, members of the population. Do you think you could give us a chance to, you know, we passed gun control. There were so many things that we passed. 
a choice was terribly important. I mean, I could go on and on and on. But that was what, when we got there, there was a lot of, hmm, let's look at this without turning people off, which was a challenge. But we were there, and I think we really made an impression, although it was very difficult, especially because in 94, when the Republicans took over and Newt... Newt Gingrich, we're talking Newt, about here. We're yes, talking about Newt Gingrich. Hillary said, you know, you got to feel sorry for somebody whose mother named him Newt. Uh, <laughs> and then there was this divisiveness. It started then. By the way, I think had Newt been more moderate, he'd still be there. It started then, and it went on and on and on. And we see now which is the genesis of your question, we see such a division in Congress where they're just not getting anything done, and I suspect they're not going to. I do have to ask you about what you are arguably most famous for during your, your two years in Congress. The vote. It, the vote, because it does relate also to today very much, and that's why I'm curious. Well, this was I a vote assume, for... Yeah. Bill Clinton's budget. His omnibus spending budget. His omnibus spending bill back in 1993 that essentially cost you your seat, as I understand. Republicans kind of went after you for that. They really did. (laughs) Laser-like. Yes. Well, I mean, I'll tell you just as an example of what can happen to an individual member. I was a debater. I took this very large piece of legislation Remember, I'm from a Republican district, so I'm trying to represent my constituents. So I knew there were parts of it that were not appealing to them, having raising taxes and things like that. But I did not think that the cuts were deep enough, and I didn't think that they looked at entitlements the way they should have. And that's what I said. So So, you opposed the legislation. Well, I, I said I didn't think it went far enough. I also realized that if it did not pass... Clinton would be a single-term president. I thought it was that important. I thought with regard to some areas, and it turned out to be absolutely correct, with some areas they were very important. But I knew how important it was. And I also knew that the reason I was, one of the reasons why I was in Congress was because Clinton was at the top of the ticket. He was amazing and he was very helpful to bringing in the Democrats. So I walked into the Capitol that night. And Clinton was on the phone. And, you know, he said, this is the night of the vote and the night of sort of tie breaking vote. If as I well, I I, I didn't, I knew that I said to him, look, I know how important this is. And I do think that if it's not passed, you go down. And he kind of laughed. And he said, yes. And I said, I will not let it go down. But I'll only be your tie-breaking vote. In the House, 217 to 217, it goes down. In the Senate, the vice president breaks the tie. There had only been two votes like that in history of this importance. One was for the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, and the second one was for the draft. And I knew that. So, I mean, it was a gamble. I certainly didn't think it would be a tie, and it was. So I gave him the 218. I gave him that vote. And that was it. There were members of my delegation, Republicans, who, I mean, one of them was just jumping up and down saying, bye-bye, Marjorie. He was a jerk. He was right. And he was a fabulous jumper. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was just, it, it was pretty extraordinary. Given that, I'm curious then, what do you think of what's happening today in Congress? Because we are going to face this, no doubt. Yes, this year, next year, there is going to be another fight over the budget. 
and well, some miserable fight over the budget. A miserable yeah. fight, and yeah. somebody is going to have to jump. Somebody on the Republican side, in order to pass a budget, is going to have to. However, it works. There's going to have to be somebody who almost essentially puts their career on the line because we have become so fractured. What is that like? Is that even possible still today? I don't know. It's a, that's a good question. There's so many members of Congress who are terrific. There really are. But there are a lot of members of Congress who just want to stay there. And that's, it's a huge temptation. It's really interesting work. So I, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but I think we're in for a very, very contentious and bombastic time. I think we're going to be looking at things that are not going to pass. I think we're going to be looking at members who are faced with this, who are looking at, do I stay or do I do something that I think is fundamentally right? And I don't know. I, for the last many years, have been stunned by people who are following Trump and the nastiness that's coming out of his mouth and how many people in this country actually believe the lie and are still fighting to make sure that Biden is not successful and that his win is not real. I mean, I'm just stunned at how many families and how many families, you know, at Thanksgiving tables where people will say, we're not going to talk about politics, that kind of thing. I'm stunned at how contentious and how split our public is. There's another aspect to that split. To go back to the career you had before Congress, which is in the media, the media is split today. Isn't Everyone is so much more it's ideological. Remarkable. Oh, I know, I know. It was a very different time, and I can remember, I mean, I started here with owned and operated stations, and then I went to, I went to NBC in Washington, and then I did some stuff for the Today Show. But it was at a time when... By the time the nightly news went on, there was a real effort to get both sides, whatever that means. I mean, sometimes there wasn't both sides, but for the most part, there was an evenness to it. Now, with the news with MSNBC and CNN and Fox and everything like that, news is breaking all the time. And sometimes there isn't the kind of interest that there should be in getting both sides than the evenness. I think that's what bothers me more than anything else. When I was covering the news, I really did try, I really tried to make sure that the other side, even I would go to an interview with somebody who was, I'll give you an example, anti-choice. And often they would say to me, thanks for being so even-handed. And one can imagine, I am wildly pro-choice. I mean, I think that women should be able to make the difficult decision with regard to any kind of healthcare, et cetera. But I really tried to see both sides. There's much, much less of that now. And I know that there are a lot of journalists who are even-handed and want to get both sides and more power to you. But I think with cable television and the instantaneousness of news, it's a real challenge. You are mother-in-law to Chelsea Clinton. Yes. You have a history with the Clintons. Um, yes. And I'm just wondering, what were your impressions of Hillary Clinton's campaign in particular and that 2016 campaign with Donald Trump, which really was such a seminal moment it that, was. In, our, it, in our history? It was. I agree. I did a lot of campaigning for her. First of all, she really is an extraordinary person. She's smart and she's kind. She has a great sense of humor. I think she was often very careful because the press was so tough on her, really tough. As were women. 
I think that there were lots of reasons why she lost, although I was stunned that she did. But let's talk about women in my generation. We were asked to kind of at the dinner table, you know, you, you, the assumption was you go to college, you'll meet your husband, you'll have children. And there were lots of women like that out there. And a lot of us found the same thing. Our kids left, you know, we divorced or we were, we we're fired or whatever it was. And, and Hillary's going to be president of the United States. If you ask pollsters, I did a lot of this because I was really curious, what's the hardest thing to measure? They will tell you with women, it's jealousy. It's off target, by the way. I mean, and there are ways to, to figure out, I teach classes like this. I mean, one of the more interesting ways to figure out what the real numbers are, I mean, and they're off by about six or 8%, by the way. At the very end, if you ask her, what would your neighbor do? You get more of the real number. It's fascinating to me. I think one of the reasons why Hillary did not win is because women didn't like her. I mean, of all ages, as much as they should have, and they should have. And a lot of it has to do with who the heck does she think she is. Women are always kind of, you should have known what he was doing. They get the short end of what their husbands do if they do something that is wrong. And of course, you always heard, she should have left him, you know, and he's such a gem. He really is. Did he make some mistakes? Sure. But she's blamed for what he did. And the men are not usually blamed for what the women did. The women do. I think she ran a very good, very tough, interesting campaign where she made mistakes for sure, but there was a compilation of things that were running against her. I think she's terrific. And she's a great grandmother. <laughs> Although well, when the grandchildren come in, there's a, hi, Grandma. And then when he walks in, it's, pop up. I mean, he's so, he, they just go crazy when, because he's just, he's a doll. He is a charm bomber, as you well know. And <laughs> he's terrific with the kids. Well, I do want to get to your kids uh, as well. But before that, just to stay on this in a, in a different way, you are also head of Women's Campaign International. Is there something about women leaders in America that is different from other places? Do you actually think it might be harder for women to get to break the highest glass ceiling in the United States than elsewhere? We have seen women leaders in other countries. I'm sure your organization has worked towards, towards have, many of right. those. What's the difference? Why has it not worked out here? I, I do not know the answer to that question. And I have thought about it a lot. I don't know. I think it's changing. I think we're getting many more women in places like the House and Senate. I think it's slow, but I don't know. I think it comes from how we raise our children, what are the conversations at the breakfast table and the dinner table, which in some cases has changed and some cases hasn't. But I don't know. I think we still expect something different from our little girls than our little boys, although I think it's changing. And I do think that when we get to places where we're making decisions in Congress and in, you know, in the House and the Senate, we still bring with us the history of how we are treated as women. I don't know the answer to that question. I think when we travel around the world, we still find that one of my favorite Women's Campaign International stories, we do often find that what we do is, is random. We doubled the number of women in parliament in Malawi 
I mean, it was not a huge number, but it was really tough to get these women elected. We did it. One of our women, Kalista Chimumbu Wamutarika, became a member of parliament and very, I mean, just smart, amazing, and was asked to be on the president's cabinet, Bingu Mutarika, and she married him. <laughs> so we had a first lady. So we started a first ladies initiative in Africa. We never thought of that. When we put down what would women's campaign, you know, international like to do, we had a first lady. So that's the kind of thing that we have to roll with and we wrap our arms around. I, I could tell you stories about WCI that will go on forever. But in doing this, sometimes we work with women who want to be politicians and sometimes we work with women farmers and everything in between. And there is the same narrative worldwide. Women are treated differently than men are. And we just have to roll with it. And we have to, you know, without being abused or abusive, we have to figure out how we can make sure that what we are thinking is important is represented. I'll give you another example. In Liberia, people come to us with problems. One of the problems in Liberia was that women were not represented at the peace tables. So a gentleman I served with, Jack Murtha was head of military appropriations. And I went to him and I said, it's really important to figure out how we can get women at the peace tables because they represent a different, and they do negotiate differently, especially at peace tables. So he gave us a significant grant. This is a DOD grant. And we went into Liberia and they really liked what we did. We brought women to the table and the peace negotiations were very different. Arguably, we got an incredible response. USAID was there, and they asked us to do what we do. A lot of it is communications. We went around the entire country. We met with every single solitary village, which nobody had done before. And we did a lot of communication skills. In other words, how do you get your point across? What's the key? And then Ebola hit. And mm. Ebola is a disease of information. So what our women started to do was and we went in and we say, okay, what has to be done? Ten things. Stop the ritual cleansing. If somebody has Ebola and comes back to your village, don't reject him or her. Use them. They should be in the hospitals. They should be cooking, etc. And if you read anything about how Ebola stopped in Liberia, they mentioned Women's Campaign International because we, we worked with the women with regard to getting the point across. So WCIs, I mean, I can go on and on and on. We've been in 50 different countries. We're a group that listens, and we go in and we, we try not to be arrogant. We try not to do drive-bys, you know, go in, have fun, train, and then leave. We stay in touch with our women. That's what I think is necessary. And that's what I really learned even, you know, when, when I was running for Congress, when I was in Congress. You know, what can we do? How, how can we use and listen and make sure that we get to the point where not only we want to be, but they want to be? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I wanted to get a, another different aspect of this, and in that sense, to bring in your children, your 11 children is that, uh, cool? that you've had. That I think it is cool, absolutely. <laughs> I'll give you the 411 so that you, you don't have to nod off, but before I got married, I adopted two girls. Yes. One was from Korea, and the other one was half Vietnamese, half American from Vietnam. Lee Hae was seven when I adopted her. She is now a serious old person who has had three children, two of whom have graduated from college and one who was in college. And uh, Holly, unfortunately, died, but she, has, she had two kids, one who was in college and one who was applying for college. 
and then I married somebody with four girls. So when, when we got married, we had six girls, and then we had two boys, Mark and Andrew. And then when we were living in Washington, because Ed, my former husband, was in Congress, we were living in Washington, and we took in refugee families. You know, some would stay six months, and would say one stayed two years. We moved back to Philadelphia, and we were asked through Lutheran Family Services, to take in a refugee family, a woman and a little boy, four years old. Vu is his name. And Vu is just the best. He's an anesthesiologist now, and he has three kids. I say lovingly as a grandmother, two of them, about six months ago, played at Carnegie Hall. So that's the family. Altogether, there were 11. And... This is one thing you told me before we started recording, but that's interesting, bringing us into current politics as well. When you speak about Vu there in particular, do you think we have lost the positive stories about immigration in this country? It is such a controversial issue with the southern border. There is now also this initiative by Joe Biden to encourage people to sponsor find families, to right. find yeah. families which yeah. is exactly what you did well let me let me let, let me tell you give uh, us a positive in that sense would you encourage yeah. people to take oh my that gosh up? i would but i say it's it isn't right for everybody and if it doesn't work it's awful i'll, I'll give you i'll give you another anecdote we, <laughs> we were visiting the clintons with the kids and everything the cousins are adorable and one of vu's kids read his book the president is missing the novel that he wrote and Sebastian, who is Vu's oldest little boy, walked over to Plinton and said, would you mind, could I ask you some questions? About the book. About the book. And Clinton sat down with him, and, and Sebastian's just a wonderful kid. And uh, he asked him all these questions, and Clinton's kind of sitting there with his arm around him and everything like that. I rarely, I've had so many conversations with him, but he really, he said, those crazy people in the White House, this is what immigration is all about this is the next generation. And this is what it, it is what it's all about. I mean, we are a country of immigrants. We are a country of people who accept folks who are running from lives that are awful. And we can make it work, but it isn't easy. The immigration problem has gotten such a bad rap. And it is overwhelming. I don't know what the answer is. I don't think it's been handled well, but I don't know how, how we handle it well because of just sheer numbers. But I can remember when the Vietnamese refugee problem happened and they called, we said yes. Everybody didn't say yes, but the Vietnamese refugees by and large have done extremely well. So I do not know the answer to the question, but it really does, it, it pains me to see it. You have to talk to the Vu's of the world. He's helped me kind of promote the book and how are the children. And he always says, you know, what's a family? What constitutes a family? Here's a kid. Vu came with his mother. He came, interestingly, with a cousin of his and an aunt. Vu's mother, Mrs. Shu, said she wasn't going to swim ashore. It was a couple hundred feet because they didn't know how to swim without a tire. They gave her a tire. They didn't have one for the aunt. The little boy drowned. His cousin drowned. And Vu asks, what would have happened to me had my folder been on a different desk that day? Had there not been a tire... And then his conclusion is, you know, what makes a family? You know, we are definitely a family with this strange conglomeration of people who get together with all of the cousins and everything like that. What is a family today? And I think that we should try to expand that and include 
people who are in need. Do you see similarities to Ukraine today when you speak of Vietnam as well and those days and who was taken in? Oh, oh my that... gosh. Well, this is a little interesting. Ukraine is different than Afghanistan. Yes. Ukraine, the people really want to go back. Unless they have family here, the people whom we try to help, the women we're trying to help, want to get to places in Poland and Germany or wherever so that they can make sure that they can go home again. In Afghanistan, it's a completely different situation. We're trying to help Women's Campaign International. Big problem is that the women from Afghanistan have been taken off the front page of the newspaper. You don't hear a lot about them, and they're still in incredible need. Ukraine, too, a little bit less. But we hear less about them. We hear a lot about the war, but not about the people, the individuals. WCI is trying to help these folks. It is very, very challenging, especially the women from Afghanistan. Some of our women, the women in our office, have just been killed. One of the ministers who helped us, a male who helped women's groups, was killed. We got another minister out with his six kids. It's really been nonstop challenging. And we're trying to get in just money to feed these women. I mean, these are women who are doctors and lawyers and professors and fabulous. And they literally are in hiding because the Taliban is scared though. Jesus out of them. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, really. It what's, really what's is. What's been happening. Yeah, yeah. Just finally, uh, if I could, <laughs> you are, if I may say, have entered the octogenarians. I know it. I know. <laughs> I, 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 just, I, I, I just went to Renaissance Weekend, which is this gathering of people who go on panels and everything like that. And David Gergen stood up and he said, 40 is the new 30. 50 is the new 40. 60 is the new 50, 70 is the new 60, and 80 is 80. <laughs> and I know exactly what he's saying because they were talking about whether Biden should run again. Which is, is why I'm is asking you Is that where you, you were going? That is where yeah, I was oh, going, how yes. How clever of you. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I really don't. I don't know the answer to that question, and I think it's a tough one because I'm looking at our bench as to who could be running, bringing with them the kind of knowledge and sensitivity and whatever, the expansiveness of him. I don't think that we have somebody out there who can replace him, but I do not know. I don't know. I think that the age issue is a big one. How do you feel about it? Well, I'm genuinely more curious from your perspective in oh, the terms on. of just the energy. Do you, how does one maintain, <laughs> I would be amazed if I had the energy to be president at the age of 80 and above. Yeah. So that's where it comes from personally. But that's what I, I wonder, do you I too, can know. you imagine it? Can you imagine being that busy, having that much responsibility? Well, actually, I have worked with him through the years and, he, and he's remarkable. And I do think that you have seen him perform. And I think he's done an excellent job under extremely challenging circumstances. I don't know the answer to that question, but it's a good question. And I think it will unfold. I don't know what's going to happen. But I mean, we're talking about how old will he be when he has... I wish I knew the answer to it. I have, as I said, through the years worked with him. He's remarkable. And I think he's still remarkable. But I don't know. Well, we'll see what happens in the next couple of years. But Marjorie Margolis, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for asking me all those thoughtful questions.
That's it for this edition of The Big Interview. It was produced by myself and Emma Searle. Our editor was Jack Jewers. From me, Chris Chermak, thanks very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.